0: Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy graziani Fossbinder, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I am so very happy to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Gina Frangello. Gina is the author of Every Kind of Wanting, A Life in Men, Slut Lullabies, and My Sister's Continent. She's an author, editor, book reviewer, and journalist published in lots of prestigious journals and other kinds of publications, as well as having been, I just learned, an indie publisher herself. And despite these many accomplishments, Gina has come to wider reputation now for her latest book, a memoir, Blow Your House Down, a story of family, feminism, and treason. Blow Your House Down was called searing, honest, heartbreaking, heart-mending, and A Hell of a Ride by Rebecca Mackay, the author of The Great Believers. Part memoir, part social commentary, this poignant book of raw candor does what its title implies. It blows the house down, departing from the customary expectations of m- women's memoir and daring to tell the truth about being an imperfect woman who dares to rise after making some mistakes in her life. But it's also a story about being a survivor of a rough childhood, of being a caregiver to troubled parents and of being a mom in a real way. Gina Frangello, I'm so happy to have you at the Morning Boy Project. Thank you for making this time for us.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So I want to I open with one question about the title of your book, and not the title, but the subtitle. Blow Your House Down, A Story of Family, Feminism, and Treason. And I want to ask you about the word treason, <laughs> so and also i'm going to confess to my listeners first of all i for i heard about this book through my own publisher brick warner and others and i listened to it on audio first but then i had to go out and buy it because i kept having to go underline things and you can't do that in an audio so i'm i'm responsible for at least two purchases and hopefully many more from here (laughs) but tell me a little bit about the subtitle there
1: So there is a moment in the book um, in which I talk about the fact that despite war and genocide and Halliburton and all the things, right, um, that for women, we often are really led to believe culturally, even in the contemporary era, that literally our worst possible crime could be to sexually transgress the boundaries of the heteronormative nuclear family. And that this is essentially like tantamount for a woman to to being a war criminal in the way that we are viewed culturally. And so I want to make clear straight away that I, so I have an affair in the book. Um, The the book is not um, a a treatise on how you should go out and be unfaithful or, or anything like that. It is not a pro infidelity book, but it is a book about the fact that we do not view infidelity in men in these same terms. And that, you know, these sort of human, very, ordinary, although also very devastating foibles that a person has as an individual, when you are a woman, particularly when you are a mother, can be amplified such that they appear to be equal to just the worst possible thing that a person could ever do. And so that is where the title comes from, because you are, obviously, of course, if you cheat and lie, you are quite literally committing a a kind of treason in your one-on-one partnership, but your actions in the wider world may be fully innocuous. And yet we view a woman who has committed adultery in these certain really hyperbolic ways that are not applied to men. And so I, it was sort of both, um, Literal in an intimate and interpersonal one-on-one way, and
0: yet like a, a, an act of personal treason. In yes, a way.
1: And, and and yet also symbolic with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek in a global
0: way. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I've been trying to think of. I, I was thinking of, and I'm going to space out on his name, but I'm thinking of the the politician who you know. Took a walk on the Appalachian Trail. Oh yes, really, yes, yes,
1: right. With his Brazilian lover. Really, with right? his Brazilian was she, lover. Was she, was she Brazilian? I think, but something but yes, Argentinian.
0: Um, I think. Not that that makes any difference at all. Who was that? What was what was his name? I, I forget his name. But you know, nobody talked. I mean, first of all, it was a big scandal and lots of stuff and all that. Because it's so absurd. But. He's an elected official now and nobody talked about him ruining his family.
1: I mean, I'm sure they did for 5 minutes, for you know, five but minutes. but but like but of course most male politicians um, you know, historically like all the big name ones with with a few exceptions have have Committed infidelity. But further, I would say that it's not even really, unless you are an elected official, it's not an area of much public interest in men. You know, I mean, well,
0: that's the other thing, too. I, I think I heard you say once if I was a man,
1: there wouldn't be a book. There wouldn't be a book. I mean, you know, maybe if I were a man and it was 1920 yeah I would be writing a really radical book about like, oh, I transgressed societal norms and i I fell in love with someone else and and you know then ended up married to them, you know, maybe if I were in hemingway's era but but at this point, for a man that's not even a story um it's 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 just a very ordinary. Part of life that is really painful for the individuals involved, but that is not of much societal interest and doesn't much define a man's identity outside of what, for example, his ex-wife or children may think of the fact that he did that, you know,
0: with a couple of notable exceptions. I, I think that Bill Clinton might have an argument about that, but
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. But he was the president of the United States, and of course, many of us, my, myself included, although obviously he has other allegations. I mean, there's a, you know, there was a largely suppressed rape allegation right. against Bill Clinton. So his his actions may have been far deeper. But but really, um, Monica Lewinsky's life was far more ruined. By that situation than Bill Clinton, who went on to, you know,
0: have foundations and endorse candidates. So,
1: you know, in, in, she was a 23 year old woman who was not even married, but her life was largely destroyed. And she was mocked in the media for, you know, all of eternity until kind of the post Me Too era, people started to re evaluate the treatment of Monica Lewinsky. Right. Um, but so, so yeah, I, I would say even when men do face a certain amount of consequences, many people find it ridiculous. And often the woman with whom they were involved is facing even steeper consequences.
0: I think for, for anyone who's written memoir of whatever kind, if they've been at all candid, if they've been at all open about and and not made themselves just the hero of their own story, if they've been a flawed person, it's a vulnerable thing to Mm -hmm. live out loud in this way. And perhaps as an indie author, you might have thought you'd have such a small little audience that it'd be... (laughs) I did in and, fact think that Betsy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you did think that. And, I did, and yes. nonetheless, because of a conspicuous New York Times review and things, it's gotten wider play. Right. And so I'm wondering what that's like for you and perhaps for your loved ones to be conspicuous in 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 an otherwise anonymous life in lots of ways. Right. I'm wondering what that's been like for you. And what, what it's been like for you to have the reverberation with readers too, with, with people who read it.
1: That is definitely, that's what I was really going to talk about. So, so the one thing, you know, I will say that not to discourage any aspiring um, writers out there, but, you know, putting out a book, unless maybe you're, you know, you reach Cheryl Strayed levels of, of, of fame does, does not tend to change your, daily life much more other than the fact that, you know, you have some interviews in your schedule and so right. forth. <laughs> um, you know, I, I lead a very ordinary life in the Midwest and so forth. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not a celebrity or anything. So, so it has not really changed my daily life much, except for the fact that this book did get much wider attention caused me to hear from Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women, who, you know, I don't think probably would have otherwise known about the book had it not been for the, you know, my my little love hate encounter with the New York Times. Um, and that has ended up being one of the most powerful experiences of my life. I mean, not just of my career, of my life.
0: And and I'm guessing, I, I'm, I'm hearing from you in other interviews and, and supposing in my encounters with you, that that was not because it's like, woo, I got attention. It seems like it's more like, oh, this story mattered to people.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it was not, woo, I got attention. Um, You know, I, I mean... Obviously, of course, writers want to have readers. Sure, of course, you know. But um, you know, I I donated my first six months of royalties of this book to um, a a local organization called Deborah's Place in Chicago. I mean, I was not looking to, you know, profit and get famous or anything like that, or 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 rich from this book. And nor would I have gotten rich from this book. But um, but I really had no idea the amount of reader interaction I was going to end up getting. I mean, I, I have four previous books and, and my third book, A Life in Men went into a few printings. I I got quite a bit of, of fan mail. It was wonderful. You know, it was a really beautiful experience, but, but nothing like what's happened with, with Blow Your House Down. And to have women of every generation across races, across abilities, across just all these different boundaries um, who have written to me because certain parts of my story, certainly not always the fact that I had an affair. In many cases, women have written to me and said, like, you writing openly about this has allowed me to set aside shame I've been carrying for 30 years. Or one of the most powerful ones, I sent this to my mother who has been carrying around her past of this for for decades. And, you know, I'm hoping this book will give her peace. It, It helped me to understand her. But in other ways, too, people who are caregiving their elderly parents, people who have made mistakes as parents, as mothers, people who, you know, are living in marriages that they they don't know how to get out of because maybe the marriage isn't so bad that they feel they have a reason, but they're profoundly unhappy. Um, And also many, many breast cancer survivors and other people who have had illnesses, chronic pain, disabilities, who have reached out and said, like, you've written about your body in this honest way that has made me Mm -hmm. feel like I can, speak about my body differently, or I can understand my own body in a different way with less shame. And so for me, it's ended up being as though all these different readers, we talked about this on a, on a an interview you were at the other night, but as though all these different women are living in these kind of bubbles, you know, if we can imagine the bubbles because in the COVID era, we sometimes sit in a bubble outside (laughs) at a restaurant, but it's like, we're all in these little bubbles of shame, believing that we are the only one who has had these, you know, unnameable actions or thoughts and so forth
0: well so let's talk about those not only the unnameable actions and and so to to summarize it, and this will not be a spoiler because it's been so out there but you had an affair a very long affair with somebody who you really really loved you were in a very troubled marriage and you ended up leaving that marriage and and you are indeed married to the man that you that you were involved with and happily so i'm gathering yes so Again, this is not an endorsement for infidelity. We're not saying that's a great thing. And 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 I I detect in your story too that while you felt the the need to do what you did, it was the deceit and the the lie that that you felt badly about and the damage that it caused to people. Absolutely. So so you know I want to separate guilt and shame here. You know mm-hmm. that I I often I'm, I've been a therapist for a long time. I've I've often heard myself say to people. You know, save guilt for when you do something bad. You know, we should feel guilty when we do something, when we hurt people, when we do something bad. That's a good thing to feel. If you're a human with compassion, that's a good thing. But guilt and shame are very different things. Right. Guilt, yes, they are. I, in John Bradshaw's world from many years ago, he says, guilt is I did something awful and shame is I am something awful.
1: That's uh, it's a, a, a very wonderful distinction. And I think... Um, you know, particularly for, for, for women and for mothers to do something awful, to do something for which you have earned the right to feel guilty, right? You know, you've, you've done something that was wrong towards a person who you've made commitments to promises to. Um, once that translates into, I am something awful, I am, Worthless, I am unlovable, I am unredeemable. We not only of course that 's kind of a crime against ourselves in in staying stuck there, but it 's also really very much a crime against people who are reliant upon us in any way um, to love them and be a, pro- a positive presence in their
0: lives. Well, because then they, they can't be flawed because then you can't love them either, right? Is that what you're kind of saying?
1: Well, it's also just, um, you know, I think it's as simple as asking oneself, like, do you want to, for example, have a mother who despises herself? Is that a healthy situation? Do you want your mother to think that she is a piece of shit? Um,
0: <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because when I, I used to teach parenting class and I used to say, you know, our kids don't get their self-esteem because we tell them they're wonderful. They get their self-esteem by watching how we respect ourselves. We're the model for how to regard yourself.
1: And And so for me, it's been really, really important. I mean, I still wrestle with guilt. I'll sure. never stop. You know, I mean, I was raised in a very close knit Italian American family. My best friends are people who I knew when I was 10 years old. I lived with my parents as an adult. They lived downstairs from me for 20 years. You know, loyalty is an extremely high value to me. And I transgressed that in a really real way. I believe absolutely fully across the board that a woman, a man anyone should have a right to leave a relationship that is no longer working for them. I went about it in an absolutely ridiculously bad way. Um that being said, that was a finite 3-year period of my life where I was having this on again off again affair and finally confessed it. And afterwards at the age of 46 or 47, i had to make a choice of like do i continue to define myself by my actions of these 3 years which are still sort of shocking and bizarre to me that that i did that cuz
0: because it's it's different than you view yourself because it's
1: different from the way i had ever seen myself right. or from the way i had previously Conducted myself. And so, you know, so do I continue to stay trapped in this sort of, you know, sinkhole of guilt that then transforms into lifelong shame? Or do I ask myself, how do I get out of this hole and continue to be a person I can believe in and that my kids can believe in and that my now husband can believe in and that my friends can still believe in and that? You know, it is absolutely painful to know that you really hurt people. But also the only thing that we are ever guaranteed of in life is change and to give myself permission to believe that I could continue to go on and I could continue to believe in my ability to be a worthwhile person good person who others can depend on and i think that when you talk about you know there are a lot of um studies about like second marriages have like a 60% failure rate in terms of divorce you know if someone's cheated once they're more likely to cheat again i think a lot of that has to do with how we now view ourselves as we go forward again
0: it's that difference between guilt and shame like guilt is I cheated and that was a bad thing to do. Shame is I am a cheater.
1: That's right. Right. That's exactly right. And so right. if I
0: am a cheater, then I'm bound to do that again. That I'm hopeless. To, i I'm hopeless. I did this thing. Right. I rue that I made the choices the way that I made them. That's exactly right. That's exactly I right. I do it differently. It's, you know, the Maya Angelou, I did then what I knew then I know better now. So I do better now. Right. It's that, that sort of feeling yes. that's, that's growth. Right. And who hasn't made a mistake who hasn't? That's right. And and you have
1: to believe in your ability to not just continue the same patterns over and over again. Um, you know, I I did come clean about my affair on, on purpose. Eventually, it took too long, um, but, you know, but eventually because I, you know, I had realized it took. A while, but I had realized that you know no one is entitled to be kind of the 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 puppet master of a system in their family where they're they know what's going on and other people don't know what's going on. And in oh, a sense, wait. you
0: let me go back to that. What are you tell me this notion of puppet master that you felt it though because you held the secret. So-
1: I felt as though I was in a sense taking more agency in the life of someone else than they were being permitted in their own life. Right. My my, ex, your first my former, my former spouse. And, and that if he did not have all the information, mm. he was leading a life that I was in a sense falsely curating. Huh. And, and that I had told myself a story for a very long time about all the reasons why that was the thing to do. Oh, it would be better to keep the family intact for our children. Oh, it would be better. You know, even you tell yourself all kinds of, you know,
0: rationalizations and things, things, Betsy.
1: I mean, you tell yourself like, Oh, I'm, I'm even doing it for, for him because now we all, we both get to see the children every day, live in our home and blah, blah, You know, you lie to yourself. When you are a liar, you lie to yourself as well. And, and so eventually your lies catch up to you unless you really are a person who is committed to a pattern of lifelong deceit and and eventually i realize that it should not be in my power or anyone's power to know more about someone else's life than they know about their own life and therefore to prohibit them from making decisions that they would very likely make if they knew all the information, If they knew all
0: the information they might leave or that's correct. Or, or, or they fact, might stay or they might, you know, whatever. right. I
1: mean, and that's the thing you can, you can then go in any different, many directions. Will we have an open marriage? Will we stay together for the sake of the children and lead separate lives? Will we divorce amicably? Will we divorce vitriolically and never speak again? You know, there are, there are a lot of choices available i have
0: to I have to say, Gina, as a therapist and as a person living on the planet with lots of acquaintances, friends, and books i've read i've never heard somebody talk about that particular aspect of infidelity of feeling as though the additional wrong was not just the deceit, but the fact that you were holding information the other person didn't have and it, it disentitled them from the choice from making an, an informed choice in their life. It's just such an, a unique way of It's the
1: primary wrong in my view. I hmm. mean I um I'm a pretty sexually open minded person and and to be honest, um, you know, I mean my ex and I are no longer in contact, but but at that time, you know I would certainly say I was a bit more free spirited than than he was, but, but he was also a a fairly sexually open-minded person. And I don't think it was the fact that I had had sex with someone else with my body. That was the primary transgression in either of our opinions at that time. I think it was the way you have the power to make someone else's life seem like it's been a lie. Mm. And the sad thing about that is that while a certain portion of their life was in fact, you know, at at least in large part a lie, I mean, maybe not unilaterally uh, thanks to, to, you know, to you and your, your deceit. It of course doesn't make the whole history of the relationship a lie, but it can indeed seem that way to the other person after you have exercised this kind of, of power and deceit, um, and withheld from them agency in their own choices in life. And so, you know, that's a very sad thing that I think more people should think about when making the choice to cheat, which can seem on the surface, like, you know, well, Okay, we can have complicated feelings about monogamy. We can have complicated feelings about what it is to have made a pledge of lifelong sexual fidelity when we're in our early 20s and now many years a. You know, we can have all these complex feelings and I have many of those complex feelings, but there are not complicated feelings about whether we really have the moral right to hold more information about someone else's life than they do that is not an ambiguous issue. You know, that feels black and white to you. That's a black and white issue. And, and that is more than anything about it all. What, what I regret.
0: Yeah. I think, I think a lot of, a lot of people that fret about infidelity as well, they should, they think of it as a (laughs) <laughs> I'm about to say this, but they think of it as a slot A tab B problem. You know where where were the genitals? <laughs> you know that's that's like the thing. And to me, the betrayal has always been about the betrayal of trust. Absolutely. And I hadn't thought of it about as the betrayal of agency in the way that you are. In our remaining time, Gina, I, I want to focus on one other aspect of the story that perhaps gets less play, and that is about. The fact that you grew up under, you know, difficult circumstances, and um, and also became a caretaker to parents, one of whom suffered with mental illness, and yes. both of whom had physical disabilities. If I'm yes. understanding correctly, can you tell me, not only just tell me a bit about those circumstances, but what do you what did you do to get through those challenging times? How do you, what do you tap into to get through? not only the difficulties, but then the emotional processing about it. Absolutely. So you, you know,
1: I, my, I, I saw on the screen, my face broke into a big smile when you said you grew up under difficult circumstances, because that itself is such a complex thing. I grew up below the poverty line. I grew up in a, in a neighborhood where violence was extremely common. a number of of people who I grew up with and went to school with died, were murdered um in gang violence, um, in random shootings. And this is where geographically? In inner city Chicago. Um and, you know, only about four miles from where I now live, but in a completely different universe. Um and, you know, I mean I had a friend who was beaten to death by a downstairs neighbor. I had friends who were who were shot, um, you know, a, a pregnant friend who the bullet hit her and killed her and her unborn Child, well when her boyfriend sitting next to her in a car was shot. I mean, there, my my life was very riddled with with violence as a, as a kid, and yet the reason my smile erupted is that I also, my parents were were very strange people, particularly my father, extremely eccentric and and indeed suffering from at times fairly profound mental illness, but they were also the kindest people I've ever known. Mm -hmm. And they, they had an unconditional love for me that was, that I have found to be extremely rare among any walk of life or socioeconomic class. So, I mean, I now as an Adult. So when I was younger, of course, I thought like, "Oh my God, I've got to get out of this neighborhood." And right, I was. You know, I've I've got to get out of here. I've got to, you know, not get married at at eighteen and end end up with a bunch of children and living here forever. It was misogyny central, the land feminism for God, etc. <laughs> but also in many other, you know, racist, um, you know, just a, a drug riddled, all of these things. But at the time, I don't, I mean, I loved my parents, I had a good relationship with them, but I don't think that I was at all aware until I was much further into my adulthood and middle age how rare the way my parents had loved me was. And that really did sustain me through the not easy um, years of of caregiving them. Right. You know, my father was quite difficult in his later life um he was so physically ill and on so much medication that the efforts to regulate his mental illness really simply became unsuccessful and he was very mentally ill for his later life my mother um was not at all mentally ill but she w- was physically disabled for the last years of her life and spent pretty much about the last 13 years of her life. She had about 17 surgeries. She had heart Mm. attacks, strokes, seizures, you know, brain bleeds, a broken neck. I mean, just all of these different things happened Mm. to her. So diverticulitis, the partial removal of her colon. I mean, I wrote an essay once called our collective list of maladies. My parents had so much go wrong in their later years that it was very, emotionally and physically trying to to be their caregiver while also raising three young children and and working um but they would have done it for me and um and that is and they did in their own way do it for me my parents from the moment of my birth put me before themselves and and my mother was my biggest champion in helping me to to rise out of my circumstances. I would not, every good thing that has ever happened to me in my life um, is at least indirectly due, due to the way my mother loved me and the way that my mother sought to elevate me and to emulate love, you know? So,
0: you know, it, it put me in mind of, of another memoir, very completely, utterly different than your own. Uh, it's Ricky Bragg's uh, all over, but the Shoutin'.
1: Oh, I've not read it.
0: He talks about how he, he grew up in poverty as well and how he, I think he, if I, I'm going to screw up the quote exactly, but I'll paraphrase it, that essentially he climbed up to the life that he has on the backbone of his mother. And that that it sounds to me as though your parents, flawed and broken, as as they may have been, they filled your well in such a way that even through the craziness of where you lived and through their later difficulties and, and indeed the challenge in your family and with the affair and all of that mess, it sounds as though you just had this infinite well from which you could draw to get through. Does that feel accurate?
1: It is a kind of full circle to what we were talking about, because I think that um, the kind of shame we were talking about, mm-hmm. the kind of shame that, that annihilates a person's chances for continuing to believe they can lead a worthwhile life and 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 be a positive force in the world in some way because of a past transgression that kind of shame i think often comes from home from family um when we are raised to believe we're never enough we're not lovable we aren't loved. We are wrong. We are always on eggshells. There will always be fury there, you know, all of these things. It's very difficult to believe you can come back from anything because the very first thing you ever will do wrong is just a confirmation of what you feel your family has always communicated to you about yourself, which is that you, you don't have worth.
0: Or that it's very conditional. That's right. You have worth until you transgress.
1: And once you've done it anything wrong, no one will ever love you again. You'll never be worthy of love again, etc. And and this sort of thing can really breed um it's it's kind of like it's sad to say that it can breed a kind of narcissistic self-loathing, but it it, it can because it's it is it really makes if, if parents do not love you properly, it really can make you feel as though you are somehow singularly damaged and singularly wrong Mm -hmm. and, and make you very, very focused like a laser beam on, on yourself and your wrongness. And I think when your parents do love you and believe in you and, sacrifice for you, even though they are flawed people, um, and have done things wrong. My mother didn't do the kinds of things I did wrong. You know, my father made more mistakes than, than my, than my mother in their marriage. But, um, but you know, you also see that a person doesn't have to be perfect to be worthwhile. And you also see that a person can have flaws in one area and continue to be valuable, lovable good in other areas. And so, you know, they do instill in you this sense that you're not just one thing. You have a sense that... I mean, my parents knew me, you know, they, they knew me, they raised me in a very tiny apartment where I lived in a closet under the stairs because it was a one bedroom apartment. Very Harry I Potter.
0: Mean,
1: <laughs> you know, I literally, it was like, you know, obviously, of course it wasn't, the ceilings weren't as low as in the Harry Potter films, but, um, but, you know, but, but we, we knew each other very intimately and, Oftentimes when I go to my worst places of kind of like guilt or, or gnashing self-loathing, like I will say to myself, like, do you think that the person who your mother invested all of this belief and faith and love in, and who gave so much back to, in love to my parents, like that this person is just, let's disregard their opinions entirely. I I'm, I'm now worthless.
0: Oh, they're just fools or they're insane. Right. <laughs> I,
1: and, and in many ways that love kept me anchored in the belief that I absolutely had to keep, I had to keep going. And I also had to find a way to continue to be a, a, a good parent despite my
0: errors to do what you're to your for your children what they did for you in that best way which is also to say too that for those of us who had parents who were equally flawed but perhaps less consistently loving or were dangerous or treacherous in some way right. i think that that for those folks they have to find that unconditional love and, and like the well is empty but they've got to learn to fill it that there's a, a a game of catch up in yes. the love, like you have this infinite well, and they're having to forever fill it, you know, and and in a healthy way, they fill it by choosing people who love them in this way, in this unconditional, loving, accepting way. And if they're broken and they can't quite, then they keep filling it with an, an impersonation of that, you know, some kind of imposter love.
1: It's very difficult um, but you have to, I think, learn a, a good friend of mine, a woman friend of mine who was pretty abused by by her mother and very neglected by her father. Um, we talk a lot about, you know, how she's had to learn to mother herself, mm-hmm. how she's had to learn to fill her own well. Um, because while I think it is very tempting when you're young to find other people who will be stand-ins for your parents and love you differently and love you more unconditionally love you more healthily etc ultimately we cannot be reliant on another person to give us a sense that we're worthy to take up air right and if that person turns out to have feet of clay because in fact they are human and they, betray us in some way or they they leave or, you know, it doesn't turn out to be a, a good relationship, any of those things, then where are you? You have to be able to somehow find it, whether therapy, whether, you know, inner journeys, you have to be able to find it within yourself. But I also do realize that when you have parents like mine, you are able to come to that more easily and it's given me a space of a very deep empathy for the fact that this kind of love from one's parents is rarer than it should be and that you know if i having been loved that way still made mistakes in my own love relationships how much more challenging It can even be to be someone who was not given a proper model of love and then is told that they should be a a perfect spouse, a perfect parent. You know, that pressure is what do you do with that when you've never had that modeled for yourself? It's very, very hard.
0: Just even learning to recognize it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds so cliched, but because it's so true, I'm going to say it. It really does. All come down to love. I, I always, I have this quote of Hemingway's that I love and he's, uh, excuse me, of F, F. Scott Fitzgerald's that I love. And it says, in the end, we were all just humans drunk on the idea that love and only love could heal our brokenness. And it does come down to just simply that. So thank you so much. Thank you for writing this beautiful book. Um, it, this challenging, not easy, book. <laughs> I'm going to tell you it, it took I took a couple of runs at first and then it became really worth it. It's it's a revolutionary kind of writing and a revolutionary kind of way of looking at things and I'm so pleased to meet you and hope that our paths will continue to cross and thank you for being part of this morning glory project. Thank
1: you Betsy for having me on.
0: I've been reflecting on my conversation with Gina Frangello, as well as reflecting after I read her book, Blow Your House Down. And in both the conversation and the reading, I came away with lots and lots and lots of extra blooms to learn from. Blooms about feminism, about writing, about all kinds of things. But for our purposes here at the Morning Glory Project, I want to draw out two extra blooms. One is the difference between guilt and shame. I used to tell people that I think I have an overactive guilt gland (laughs) and that I felt guilty for things that I wasn't responsible for at all. And that's not a good thing. That's just, that's personal lack of self-esteem, whatever that might be. I, I no longer have that, by the way. I've had some treatment to keep that from happening. But I think guilt in and of itself applied rightly has gotten a bad rap and shouldn't Guilt is what we should feel when we do something that's outside of our value system, something that we know is wrong, something that harmed someone else. The guilt is the pain that keeps us learning and growing and changing and keeps us from doing something again. So guilt attached to that means I did something bad. I feel badly about it. I don't want to do that again. I may need to fix something. That's a good thing. You know, sociopaths don't feel guilt. Lots of criminals do not feel guilt. Lots of criminals that aren't in jails (laughs) don't feel guilt. They only feel remorse about getting caught. And that's a different thing. Now, guilt, I said, is a good thing when appropriately applied, not when it's not. But shame is another matter. Guilt is I lied or I cheated or I did something that I knew broke a promise to somebody And I feel badly about that. That's a good thing, right? But shame isn't I did something awful. Shame is I am something awful. The work of John Bradshaw decades ago taught us this difference. Shame isn't I lied. Shame is I'm a liar. Shame is I'm a cheater. And that sounds like an unfixable, fixed thing, doesn't it? And it doesn't offer any opportunity. Shame causes people to tear themselves up, to continue to act shamefully, to feel terrible about themselves, and to try to drown that shame in lots and lots of self-harming behaviors or to express it in behaviors that continue to harm others. The expression hurt people hurt people. (laughs) People who are damaged hurt other people, and I think that's about shame. So that's Extra Bloom number one. But Extra Bloom number two is about love, and I like that one too. Gina talked about how through everything, though her parents are flawed, they were flawed and broken people, they also loved her deeply, unconditionally, with her flaws. That I know you're you're not perfect, but I love you feeling. Now, not all of us are blessed to have that in the parents that we were born to. But perhaps we find it elsewhere. We find it in friends. We find it in surrogate parents, in mentors, in teachers, in new partners that we choose. And I believe that when you have that unconditional love, when you learn to recognize it and welcome it, it becomes a well that you can draw from in troubled times, that you can draw from at a time that you make mistakes. If I know I'm unconditionally loved, I can go to a friend and say, wow, I blew it. I'm so sorry. And that friend can say, well, I was mad. I am mad at you for doing that. But I love you. Pretty nice extra blooms, huh? So what we need to do is give that unconditional love as well as learn to receive it. Give it to our kids. We can't make... Our love for our children, our acceptance of them, our esteem for them, conditional upon their performance. If they don't marry the right person or practice the right faith or go into the right profession or live in the right area. (laughs) I can't tell you as a therapist how many times I've heard adult children talk about how they just never met their parents' expectations and they did not feel loved. So we need to give that to our kids, to our friends, to our partners to our family members, to our community members. Pretty nice extra blooms. So wherever you are, I hope that you are shunning shame, using guilt to make changes, and giving and receiving unconditional love. Because that will help you to bloom. Thanks for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I'm always honored by the gift of your time.